Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Now I will be doing the reading for today's sermon. Uh, the reading is Mark 7, verses 1 to 30. I'll be reading from the NIV, so please uh, read along with me. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless unless their hands are ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachers are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything from their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes, evil throughout comes. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want. He told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Well, g'day, and good to see you this morning. Um, If you're joining us for the first time, or I don't know, maybe if you've forgotten, uh, we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, or at least the first eight chapters. Um, Mark is one of the four foundational documents, I guess you could say, of the Christian Faith, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels, are foundational 
documents, uh, historical accounts of the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which have been very much foundational to the Christian faith uh, since the, the very beginning. Um, that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are the first four books of the New Testament. And it's why Christians from at least the second century AD have stood when they've gathered together in church for the reading of the gospel. Um, I think I jumped in on our post-church Zoom chat last Sunday when this was being kind of talked about. I think I was late to the piece, uh, but was talking about like, why do people stand or why did people stand for the reading of the gospel when Christians gathered in the past. Um, I wondered if you stood up when uh, the Mark chapter 7 or part of Mark chapter 7 was just read for us just then. If you didn't, that's totally fine. Um, see, standing for the reading of the gospel has been done since the second century, right up until like, I don't know, last week. It's uh, only recently have traditions or churches kind of stopped doing that. It just gives you a sense, though, if you think about it, just how foundational or significant Christians have thought of the documents, the Gospels of Jesus Christ. You see, you stood to hear the Gospel read, not because the Gospel was any more God's holy word than any other part of the Bible, but because the Gospels were the foundations upon which we stand as followers of Jesus. And I wonder, I think this is a great time, these uncertain times have provided us with an opportunity, I think, to check whether or not we, individually, as a church at North Adelaide, are standing on the foundations, or if we're maybe slipping or drifting towards maybe some sinking sand. Um, A good time to review whether or not we're developing traditions or patterns of behaviour on the foundations or away from the foundations. I wonder, I hope that you're reading uh, the Mark devotional sort of weekly reading guide uh, to check for yourself um, and to afresh remember the foundations of our Christian faith. Because foundations are there to be built on and also built over. And I'm told, right, by engineers that if you start building away from the foundations, things can get a little bit precarious. And if we start building our church away from the foundations, we can start getting a little bit shaky too. You see, throughout church history, there have been thousands of different developments that were built on the foundations, but over time, the connection to the original foundations can kind of drift a little bit. So even a church building, right, like the church building that I'm coming to you from today, this church building at 92 Archer Street, or the thousands of churches across our city of churches in Adelaide, um, they were a development in Christianity, um, first century followers of Jesus, we read of them in like, you know, Acts chapter 1, 2. They didn't have church buildings, but in the second and third centuries, Christians kind of thought, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a building to meet in? Now, that wasn't a command from Jesus in the Gospels, but it was built on the foundations of the Gospel. Um, Christians thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a place to meet in safely, a, a place we can get together and learn from each other, a, a community hub in the building oozing out the love of Jesus? Those things flow from the Gospel, you'd agree. But, of course, a building can become, over time, a distraction to the gospel, drift from the foundations. We can become overly obsessed with an old building or even obsessed with a new building and drift from what we're really on about. 
Or think about robes. We don't really get around in robes here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. You might have a history of being at a church where the pastor, the preacher, the minister wore kind of funky robes or what you might call kind of dresses. I don't know. Um, These started out, they ideally started out as an identification with the peasants, with the common person in church. Um, So that the minister wasn't distinguished from the peasant or the member of church. It's a lovely idea, totally connected to the gospel. We are all one in Jesus Christ. There's no longer male, female, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But over time, in certain traditions, robes became sort of a distinguishing marker, um, a separateness between the minister and the rest of the church, a mark of authority, a mark of otherness, drifted from the foundations. Well, maybe closer to home for us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, is the idea of small groups, or what we call discipleship groups, DGs. Now, small groups meeting in a church or meeting during the week between church gatherings are probably the most recent modern church tradition to kind of come. They really are. And they are built on a good foundation getting smaller groups of people together so they know each other and are known to others. They can read the word together, share life together, carry carry each other's burdens together. All those things are pretty wonderful tradition, really, are our DGs. But they can also become problematic, you'd agree, right? If we start thinking that being part of a DG is a distinguishing mark between those who are in the core versus those who are kind of on the fringe... You know, the really devoted ones, they're the DG members. The less than devoted ones whom we have to do a bit more work with, they're the yet-to-be-in-a-DG people. You can see how that's in defiance of the foundation. Now, my point is, right, that you can develop foundations, traditions away from the foundations or on the foundations. Now, why am I banging on about this on Sunday morning? Well, Mark chapter 7, and I hope you have it open in front of you, um, shows us that the Pharisees, a group within Judaism, developed traditions to the point of disconnection from the original foundations. Um, Jesus, in verse 8 in our passage, goes so far as to say this, chapter 7, verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. You've let go of the commandments of God and you're holding on to human traditions. That's a very powerful and striking thing for Jesus to say. You see, Mark chapter 7 simultaneously shows us where Jesus thought Judaism of his day had could have left or drifted from the foundations. And Jesus tells us where he really thinks those foundations are. It's a really, really, really important text. You know, Mark 7 really teaches us two things, two real points for our sermon today. Um, Firstly, he shows us what it looks like to drift from the foundations, and then he tells us two foundations that we ought to build our traditions, our church upon. So firstly, drifting from foundations. Right up front, I think we saw this in Mark chapter 1, right up front, Christianity is at its heart quite Jewish. Christianity is actually quite Jewish. In Mark chapter 1, we're introduced to, to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to deal with sin and rescue people and establish 
people for his kingdom, we meet in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel that Jesus has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament expectations, hopes and dreams. And we see that in chapter 1 and we see it playing out as we've gone along now at chapter 7. But a big question that I was asked sort of early on in this series and I feel like I get quite regularly, especially after our Acts series, was how come today Christianity and Judaism are so far apart? And the other question that comes with that is how come so many Jewish people kind of dismiss Christianity and dismiss Jesus as the Messiah? And I want to tell you, right, Mark chapter 7 goes some way to helping us answer that question, that situation. Um, In order to kind of get to the heart of the drifting from foundations and, and why Christianity and Judaism have drifted, we need to do a little bit of history. And it's here I want to give great thanks to the guys and girls at the Centre for Public Christianity who have helped me no end understand um, the answers to these questions. You see, in Jesus' day, there were five key groups or five key kinds of Judaism. So in the first century, Jesus comes into the world and he comes as a Jew, by the way, um, to find five key groups of Judaism. The first group, and we meet them in chapter one of, uh, sorry, verse one of chapter seven. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him. So the first group is the Pharisees. Um, The word Pharisee basically means pure or purity. So the Pharisees were this purity movement. Um, They believed that you could be clean, right with God, wherever you were, as long as you maintain the traditions of the elders, which are mentioned in chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel. So whether you're in Jerusalem or 50 kilometres north, south, east or west from Jerusalem, as long as you maintain the tradition of the elders, you were pure, you could be right with God. That's what mattered to them. So the Pharisees were the first group. The second group were known as the Sadducees. Um, The Sadducees wanted nothing to do with the traditions of the elders. These were the the temple elites. Um, So they ran the temple in Jerusalem, this incredible structure. They believed that as long as they did all the right rituals that were kind of handed down from Moses in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, did all those things right, God would bless Israel. They wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees and their traditions. They just wanted to maintain the temple. Okay, so Pharisees, Sadducees. The third group were the Essenes, who basically thought that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had got it all wrong. Um, They were the kind of fundamentalists of the day, the Jewish fundamentalists. And they went, we're out of here. They left Jerusalem, the Essenes, and set up a, a little community in Qumran next to the Dead Sea from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's another topic for another day. But the Essenes basically went, we're going to hang out here, be fundamentalists. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees get wiped off the face of the earth, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and take charge. That was kind of their thought. The fourth group were the Zealots. Um, The Zealots were this kind of hardcore group of Jews who maintained or upheld the Pharisaic traditions of the elders, but they believed that God had given them a political agenda. And that political agenda meant militantly take back Jerusalem and Israel from the Roman rule. And so they were all about that, maintaining the tradition of the elders, but take Jerusalem by force. That's what they believed. That was their agenda. The fifth group is what um, Centre for Public Christianity, at least, calls the baptizers. Um, these were a group of Jews who believed that 
Israel, God's original people, had drifted from God. They'd abandoned God and it was time to come back to the basics. So they just called for Jewish people to repent, turn back to God, and go back to the Jordan River and be baptised, walk through the Jordan again and, and start afresh with God um, and live for him. Um, two key characters who kind of led this movement are A, John the Baptist, who we meet in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, and the second person is Jesus of Nazareth, um, who is one of the key leaders of the baptising movement. So Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and the baptisers. Now here's the point. Any, any one of those five groups, maybe not the Essenes because of where they were, any one of those five groups of Jews in the first century could have been mainstream Judaism, for example. They could have been at the centre. So while the temple stood in Jerusalem, the Sadducees, the temple elites, they could have been you know, at the heart of Judaism in the first century. And the Zealots, right, they had some remarkable victories over the Romans, notably 66 AD, first century. They smashed the Romans and people thought, wow, maybe these guys are the chosen ones. We should follow them. But then in the year 70 AD, the Romans came into Jerusalem and razed Jerusalem to the ground and they smashed the temple in Jerusalem. As a result, the Sadducees, right, they were all but gone. The Zealots, they'd been kind of shown for who they are, not all that powerful after all. And really that left in the first century, at least later in the first century, two groups of Jews, the Pharisees and the baptizers. You, you, you kind of then advance forward a little bit later in the first century. Really, Judaism looked quite different. Um, the year 200 AD, by the way, um, the Pharisees had multiplied the, the laws to such a degree that they produced a book called the Mishnah, the holy book of Judaism, the Mishnah, 1,100 pages long, covering the Pharisaic traditions of the elders. Come forward from 200 AD to the 5th, 6th and 7th century after Christ and they produced a document called the Talmud, actually like literally hundreds times longer than the New Testament. And it's a collection of the laws that the Pharisees kept developing and refining and developing and refining. Now you're asking, why are you going on about this? Why is all this important? Well, you see, the Pharisees developed Judaism to a point where they excluded the baptising movement that we call Christianity, that in the first century just looked like a form of Judaism. So the baptizers looked a lot like Christianity, right? Um, although they were kind of Jewish, so they were declaring Jesus is the Messiah. That's what we declare at City Light Church North Adelaide. They were out there reaching out to Gentiles, all people, seeking that they would come to repent and trust in Jesus, the Messiah. That's what we do. But the Pharisees, towards the end of the first century, and following excluded Christians and declared them minim, heretics. So in a weird way, right, Christianity is an earlier form of Judaism than the Judaism of today, of the Mishnah and the Talmud. You see, all forms of Judaism today come from this later form of Judaism, from the Pharisees. Um, Orthodox, conservative and reformed Jews, the three big denominations in the world today, are all later versions of Judaism. In Jesus' day, Pharisees or Pharisaism was just one option of Judaism. But it was an option that was in grave danger of shifting, of drifting away from the foundations of God's will. 
And Jesus criticised them in Mark chapter 7. And he criticises them first in Mark chapter 7, verse 5 and 6 for their rules about hand-washing. Have a look at uh, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's what Jesus says. Now, you read that today about hand-washing, and you say, hey, Jesus, hand-washing is critical. We live in coronavirus world, COVID-19, where the first frontline defence to this thing is hand-washing. Maybe, Jesus, you've got it wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus is actually talking about, nor do you. What is all this about? Well, we know in the Mishnah, that you know, book of the traditions of the elders of the Pharisees, they have an 11-page document called Yadayim, hands, hands, Yadayim. Say it with me, Yadayim, hands. And in Yadayim 2.3, we encounter this idea of the hardcore, strict approach that the Pharisees had to hand-washing. Let me just share a little bit with you. And this is from Yudayim 2.3. Quote, the hands are susceptible to uncleanness and are rendered clean up to the wrist. How so? If one pours the first water of two washings up to the wrist and the second beyond the wrist, as it went back down to the hand, it is clean. If he poured out the first and second pouring of water beyond the wrist and went back down to the hand, it is unclean. If he poured out the first water onto the one hand and was reminded and poured out the second water onto both hands, they are unclean. If he poured out the first water onto both hands and was reminded and poured out the second water onto one hand, his hand that has been washed twice is unclean. If he poured out water onto one hand and rubbed it on the other hand, It is unclean. I think you get the point, right? 11 pages of rules about the right way to wash your hands. And today, Orthodox Jews follow Yudayim, Yudayim, sorry, strictly. My point, Jesus criticised the Pharisees for this stuff. He said it's building away from the foundations. You've lost the heart of what's really going on. And he also has a go at them in verses 9 to 13 about this thing called Korban. Did you hear that? Um, Let me read it. Jesus continued, verse 9, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. I mean, what is all this about? Um, verse 11, you know, Jesus declaring, talking about korban. Well, let's just say, right, you have a piece of property and you don't want your parents to benefit from it because your parents are poor and they're in need of some food, some grain, some wheat, whatever it might be. So what you do in order for them to not gain access or get any benefit from your parcel of land, you declare that parcel of land korban, devoted to God. And what that did is makes it ritually impossible 
for your parents to benefit from that land. And according to the traditions of the elders, you're not breaking the law. Even though you're not loving your parents, you're not breaking the law. So everything's okay by doing it that way. And guess what? Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says, you do many things like that. And you read the Mishnah and there's a lot of them. Jesus is not exaggerating here. You've you've drifted from the foundations. How did Christianity and Judaism part ways? Well, you see, the Pharisees had developed and redeveloped and defined and then redefined Judaism in all the ways that Jesus totally condemned. They drifted from the foundations. You know, the central thing was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and then love your neighbour as yourself. And they just kind of abandoned that. See, it was inevitable over time that Jesus' vision for what it meant to be a a member of God's family, a follower of the God of Israel, would be really different to that of the Jew. Which then kind of kicks us into the second part of the message today. You know, a better foundation, a better vision for being the people of God. You know, the drifting away from foundations. But what are the foundations upon which Jesus wants the people of God to be known for? And this is where we go, foundations to build on. You see, beautifully, right, Jesus doesn't just kind of fire with hard, challenging critique of the Pharisees and then just kind of walk away. No, Jesus lays for us a more beautiful, a more wonderful foundation. He says, hey, Pharisees, you're on shaky ground. He might be saying to us, you're on shaky ground. Jesus says, here's a better vision. Here's a better foundation. Mark chapter 7 gives us two Insights into two foundations of Jesus. His vision for what it means to be the people of God. The people of God in coronavirus times. The people of God all the time. And the two foundations are really simple. A pure heart and a generous spirit. Or to put it differently, moral conviction connected with social compassion. Let's see how this comes out in the text. Um, Firstly, moral conviction or a pure heart. Um, It's hard to see in Mark chapter 7 the kind of revolution that Jesus kind of opens up for us. Our Western culture is so, so, so shaped by what Jesus says in Mark 7. We've kind of lost its force or impact or impression. So what Jesus does here is he relegates the external stuff and elevates the internal, elevates the heart. It's a revolution in thinking. You see, in first century Greek and Roman religion, it was all about the external. What mattered was the external. Um, Your honour was all bound up with externally looking the goods, right? Having it all together. Didn't matter um, how you felt. Didn't matter, actually, how you felt about the deity. Didn't matter how you felt about anyone, actually, as long as you just went through the rituals, did all the external things well. Um, The Greeks, the Romans, they never talked about the heart. Um, Purity of heart didn't matter to them. It was all about practices, rituals, going through the motions. Now, some parts of Judaism, right, in Jesus' day were exactly the same, all about externals. So, like, the whole hand-washing thing, right, um, was all about making you clean, even though you could be inside a seething mass of evil and hatred towards your your father, your mother, your siblings, your boss, your friends, your neighbours. Or, for example, like under the law of the Pharisees, the tradition of the elders, right, you were permitted to avoid helping a 
Gentile Samaritan who was dying or wounded, lying on the side of the road, because if you went to them, you might become unclean. See, the external was really important. And so all of that background, right, Greek and Roman religion, the laws of the day, helps us to see just how stunning Jesus' statement is in verse 18 that seems to us like common sense because 2,000 years has passed. But have a look at verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus says, Then are you also without understanding? Are you so dull? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods unclean. He goes on. What comes out of a person, Jesus says, is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a person, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying, right, externals don't count for anything. Externals don't count a fig if your heart is a seething mass of evil. This was a revolution in thinking. It was a revolution, but it was a revolution, right, that you'd agree is hard to police, right? It's really easy to police the washing of the hands thing. You know, if you're down the street, you come into contact with someone, if you don't wash your hands, hey, you haven't washed your hands, you're unclean. But see, the the revolution that Jesus puts here about our hearts, our inside, is a revolution that's really impossible to police, You see, we can all look like committed Christians on the outside while being a seething mass of evil on the inside in our hearts. And no one will know. Jesus says, basically, forget the externals. They count for nothing if your heart is impure. Church attendance, singing contemporary songs, not hymns, How you do the Lord's Supper, making coffee for people at church, being a member of a DG, observing Lent before Easter, Advent before Christmas, right? None of it matters if your heart entertains verse 1, 21, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. This was... Utterly foundational for Jesus, for his vision for the people of God. Moral conviction, purity of heart. Now, some of the purity rules of the Pharisees actually also concerned human beings. It wasn't just foods and pots and pans and whisks and utensils and knives and forks and things like that. People could be unclean and contact with unclean people could make you unclean. And more than that, they actually even graded the levels of uncleanness of different human beings. It's extraordinary. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I think it explains the shift we see in Mark chapter 7. Uh, from the debate about hand-washing and foods to the story of Jesus going to meet a Gentile woman, an unnamed Gentile woman, a woman who would have been regarded as impure by everyone. But first, before we get to that story, let me quote from the Mishnah 
about the pharisaical grading of human beings' uncleanness. It basically was written to help you see who you could and couldn't really have around at your home for dinner on a Saturday or Sunday night. I quote from the Mishnah. Concerning tax collectors who enter your house, the house is unclean. Concerning thieves who enter your house, only the place trodden by the feet of the thieves is unclean. Isn't that extraordinary, right? So tax collectors were seen as more unclean than the thieves. Only where the, the, tax, the, the thief had trodden really was unclean. You only had to clean those parts. Oh, and by the way, it goes on. If there is a Gentile, that's a non-Jewish person with them, everything is unclean. You see, Pharisaic purity rules were exclusionary. How do we, you know, because if we touch some people, they're contagious and we'll become unclean. So you avoided particular people as much as you possibly could because you didn't want to be impure. Here's the thing. Jesus Christ of Nazareth rejected this. He taught that purity of heart, knowing that you are a sinner, would lead to a generosity of spirit to the impure. It would lead to compassion, social compassion. And this is the second foundation. And it's what we learn from the story in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 30. Jesus' interaction with a, with a Gentile woman, with a daughter who has an impure spirit. Now, I don't know, when it was read out a bit earlier, Mark chapter 7 and this particular story, I wonder if you thought, hang on, that's not the Jesus that I've come to know and love. He seems a little bit harsh here. What happened to lovely, gentle, meek and mild, gentle and lowly and lovely and merciful and compassionate Jesus? He seems a little bit mean to this woman. This woman comes to Jesus in utterly desperate circumstances, verse 26. She begs him to help her daughter. And Jesus, right, he equivocates and he as good as calls her a dog. Did you see that? Verse 27. But you see, that misses the point of this beautiful story. See, this cannot be an an anti-woman story. This cannot be an anti-Gentile story for a whole bunch of reasons, right? First, comparing this woman to a dog in a parable had none of the kind of modern connotations we have of calling somebody a dog today. And we've got to think like an ancient, not a modern here. More to the point, Mark chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus says that the gospel must go to all people, even the Gentiles. There's no way that this is an anti-woman or a denigrating of a woman story or an anti-Gentile story. What we see here is that Mark has linked this scene of an impure woman with the debate about the Pharisees about impure hands and impure food. Do you see verse 24, um, the transition sentence? Um, it, 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 you know, pretend the, the silly, I shouldn't say that, the, the less than helpful NIV headings they put in here, pretend that's not there. What we have is a transition sentence, verse 24, which literally reads, from there he got up and went to Tyre. It's a narrative link. I'm telling us that this story relates to the story we've just heard. It's a deliberate move on Jesus' part. Jesus leaves the Pharisees and their obsessions about impurity and goes to a famously impure region and finds a famously impure woman. This cannot be accidental. Do you notice in verse 26 how Mark labours this woman's pagan status? 
Do you see what he says? Remember, she lives in Tyre. That's, that's, like, that's, that's not bad enough. She's a Greek. No, no offence to Greek people listening. And she's also indigenous of Syria and Phoenicia. Like She is like utterly and completely a pagan. Oh, and by the way, her daughter, she has an impure spirit and the fact that she's looking after her daughter with an impure spirit makes this woman like fully impure. In every imaginable way, Mark is setting up this story as Jesus has left an impurity debate to go to the most impure scenario possible. The whole thing is deliberate. Mark is setting up her impure credentials because in the end, this story functions a bit like the first part of the narrative. In verse 19, what does Jesus do? He declares all foods clean. And now in this scene, he will declare this woman clean. That's what's happening here. But what about that little parable, right, about um, taking bread and, and giving it to the dogs. What, what, what about that verse 27? Well, simple, right? It's designed to provoke the very response that Jesus gets. Oh, I don't think Jesus is playing games with this woman. I don't think there's a kind of a twinkle in his eye. You know, some people kind of read it like that and think like that. I actually think Jesus is simply holding up to this woman the first century perspective uh, the first century Jewish perspective on Gentiles and then asking her to comment. I think it's like Jesus is saying, hey woman, um, you know we Jews are famous for withholding the bread of God from other people, keeping it to ourselves. What do you think about that? He's trying to evoke the very response that is right there in verse 28, where she beautifully and humbly says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Ah, that's the answer I wanted. Humble faith. She recognises, yeah, that she is undeserving. That although not part of Israel, the blessings of Israel are extended to all people. And she goes, even, even me. This humble, unnamed woman demonstrates remarkable spiritual discernment. She's actually the first character in Mark's gospel to kind of comprehend the the nature and the magnitude and the beauty of God's salvation plan, a salvation that begins first with the Jews but is meant for all people everywhere. And Jesus blesses her, heals her daughter, and the scenario is Resolved. And notice it's the only story Mark includes of Jesus' visit to Tyre. Verse 31, bam, Jesus is on his way again. You see, Mark tells us if, as if, tells his story as if it's a mission trip with a single purpose, to find the most unclean thing he can find and extend his amazing grace in that place. Yeah, just briefly, though, a comment on this remarkable woman. One commentator says this, the woman demonstrates humility. Instead of being offended or put off or put off by Jesus' initial rebuff, she humbly accepts the epithet dog, but then turns it to her own advantage. She acknowledges that she is undeserving with no rightful place at the table, but then falls at Jesus' feet literally and asks for mercy. This is our only only appropriate approach to God as humble sinners in need of grace. 
We bring nothing to the table except our emptiness and the promise of a loving and merciful God. This unnamed woman is a model disciple of Jesus. She models faith. She models humility. She's willing to be the last instead of the first. She's totally aware that sin matters. She's also aware of the compassionate nature of God and the inclusive nature of the gospel. These are the things God is looking for in his people, moral conviction and social compassion. In these two scenes of Mark chapter 7, we see two critical foundations of Jesus' vision for the people of God, what it means to be the people of God, the demand for a pure heart and the emphasis on a generous spirit, moral conviction and social compassion. And I'm pretty sure I've said this before in another sermon or two. You know, throughout church history, the, the church has tended to emphasise one over the other. So at times the church has been known for moral conviction, all about purity, and yet forgotten how easily Jesus could go to be with sinners. The compassion muscle atrophies and the conviction muscle kind of grows big. I think of you know, images of like Roger Federer at that point. I don't know if you've seen Roger Federer. He's got this massive right arm because that's just, I don't know how many tennis balls he's hit in his life, but his left arm is like a atrophied stick of an arm. I don't know. You know, over time we've, we've grown the conviction one but lost the compassion one. Vice versa though, right? There have been periods in church history, especially today, where I think it is the opposite where the church is wonderfully compassionate, incredibly kind, and yet has abandoned the moral convictions that once kept us alive. No insistence on purity of heart. And you know what? Wider society doesn't help us at all here, being the people of God in this world, because wider society kind of encourages this kind of splitting of moral conviction and compassion. Um, Adelaide society, Western culture doesn't understand, right, how it's possible to profoundly disagree with someone over a moral issue and yet totally love them at the same time. Our society's lost its memory of how to do that. And I actually wonder if we as God's people have lost the memory of how to do that. You know, whenever society, the world out there, hears of moral conviction, guess what it hears? Moralism doesn't think you can be loving at the same time. So what our society does, right, it it, it divides people into the moralistic and the humanitarian, right? Who wants to be moralistic? I don't want to be moralistic. So we all rush to humanitarian and abandon our moral convictions, drop the commitment to purity of heart. And I suppose there are some who go the other way, probably not many amongst us at City Light Church in North Adelaide, You know, some who don't want to associate with all the lefty, hippie humanitarians, so we rush to become all moralistic. I don't think there's too many of us who are like that. Maybe there are. I don't know. But my point is, right, that neither is the right way to kind of act and build our foundations and build our lives on. Jesus says both of them have to go together. Moral conviction and social compassion together. Jesus Jesus had this amazing ability to, to thunder in public against murder and adultery and sexual immorality and thunder against hatred and racism and violence. And then that night, walk off and have a beautiful meal with tax collectors and sinners. 
Oh, may we be like him. You know, my prayer for City Light Church North Adelaide as we wrestle with Mark chapter 7 this week and and as we continue to think about what it looks like, potentially for us, what it looks like for us to be a church post-COVID-19, that we would be a church built on these two foundations, that our church will always be a place of moral conviction and social compassion. Neither will the two be kind of pulled apart. Purity of heart, generosity of spirit. That, brothers and sisters, we will be, we'll be serious about secret sins. That we'll, we'll read Mark 7 and, and see verse 21 and, and have a look through that list and go, are some of those things that are coming out of my heart things that I need to bring before the Lord? And I'm not saying you need to confess them before the whole church, but maybe you need to talk to someone about them. That we will be a people who is serious about purity of heart, moral conviction. But we'll also be a church that is radically generous and compassionate to others, where there is no hint of racism, where there's no hint of homophobia, where there's no hint of Islamophobia, no moral higher ground, a commitment to extending the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone, wherever we go. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray and ask that you would protect us from drifting from your word. Father, we do pray that you would help us to build our lives individually and build our church corporately on these foundations of moral purity and social compassion. Father, help us to build any traditions that we have now and into the future on the solid rock of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in light of what we've learned today, Father, search us. Father, change us. Father, grow us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.